So we're kicking off a new series. Uh, we've just been finishing up in the Psalms. And I thought it was a fantastic series, opportunity to, to learn and to pray, how to pray together uh, and through the, through, according to God's will through the, through the scriptures as well. Um, but we are going to be today in Mark. Uh, so turn to Mark, turn to Mark 11. Uh, Mark is an action-packed book that takes on us on a journey takes us on a journey. Mark is this kind of storyteller. I think he's a really good storyteller, revealing kind of bit by bit uh, who Jesus is and what it really means to follow him. And so we kind of, if you, if you remember back before Christmas, some of you who have got a good memory uh, would know that we did a series in Mark part one, going through the first 10 chapters of Mark. Uh, and we're kind of now finishing this uh, series off in Mark. Uh, we titled that before, A Journey with Jesus. We're uh, titling this one, uh, A Journey to the Cross. It's kind of the lead up to Easter, the lead up to this uh, kind of climax of the story, if you like, pointing to the cross. See, the first half, the first part was all about Jesus uh, convincing his disciples of who he is, the, the awaited Messiah, the one that is, to, uh, is coming uh, as the king. And he performed miracles, Uh, he called his first disciples, Uh, he kind of taught about God's kingdom, Uh, he drew amazing crowds, we kind of can look throughout the scriptures of of Mark, just how kind of exciting things going on in the Gospels, uh, particularly in Mark, and he kind of moves at like a rapid pace, he's kind of got the word immediately, like every few minutes, it's like, it's kind of moving quickly, but faithfully reporting the story of what's going on as Jesus is around. And so today we're going to be in chapter 11, uh, and it's the turning point, if you like. It's a turning point in Mark, because we now enter the final week of Jesus' life. It's this final week, which is all set in Jerusalem. It's the countdown to Easter, and everything is pointing towards the cross. And Mark 11 starts off this beginning of Passover week where the Jewish people are looking back to this, the freedom they had from the Egyptian slavery. They're looking back to this incredible point. We might know it as Palm Sunday. And it's a day of celebration. It's a kind of exciting excitement. There's a, there's a, it's party time, if you like. It's festival season. Uh, it's kind of the, the, the crowds are gathering. Anticipation is building. Uh, and there's something on the horizon which is even more exciting. See, there's something brewing because Jesus is coming. Here comes Jesus. What's he going to do? So we're going to be in Mark 11, verses 1 to 19. Let's read them together. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? The Lord has need, say to them, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks 
on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one, enter, uh, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came, he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who had sold and those who brought, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. <clears throat> and when evening came, they went out of the city. So, to understand, to understand the significance of what's going on here in this passage, Mark is encouraging us to look backwards and to look forwards. See, he's encouraged us to look backwards because all of Jesus' actions are rooted in Old Testament prophecy. They're all rooted in the Old Testament speaking of a coming king. And we're also encouraged to look forwards to the day that the king comes again. See, the king has come, but the king is coming. And so it's important we grasp this passage in the light of what's gone before and what's coming next. And in Mark 11, uh, this kind of Jew Jesus entering Jerusalem is declaring, Jesus is declaring quite clearly who he is. He's the king. The king is here. And he does this in two specific ways. Firstly, by riding into Jerusalem on a colt. Sounds strange. How does that pronounce that he's a king? We'll look at that in a minute. And secondly, by cleansing the temple. Again, we're going to look at why does that proclaim Jesus as king. But in between, uh, you would have noticed in between them two declarations and two events, if you like, there was this strange event of the fig tree. Very weird, you might have heard about it before, where Jesus kind of, Jesus is like this, this usually he would kind of take people from death to life, right? There's like healing would come, like good stuff. In this moment, it's like the first moment where he's cursing a like a tree to make it die it's like surely that's the opposite of Jesus this strange event and we're going to look at why he did that what that means and how that declares again that he is king it's a warning it's actually a warning to us as well so first of all let's get into these verses uh, firstly Jesus declares he is king by riding on a colt how is that well back in them days and I guess to a degree today what kings did is they would enter into a city, usually on a war horse, proclaiming this is the king. They would be surrounded by crowds of people shouting and screaming and cheering in triumph. And so when the 
for the for the Jewish people, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they instantly recognised him as king. They instantly recognised that the king is here. And so what they did is they repeated what happened back in the Old Testament in two kings at the coronation of Jehu. See, they threw off their cloaks. Can you imagine it? I'm not sure that would happen today, but they threw off their cloaks and they're throwing them down onto the road. It's almost like this, this modern-day um, red carpet, what we would see today. It's like they're, they're, they're kind of making the way for Jesus, the king, to enter. And as they're shouting, as they're proclaiming, as they're cheering, they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. See, Hosanna means save us. Save us. There's this cry of worship to a saviour king. These verses are taken back from uh, out of Psalm 118, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, Mark wants to make it clear that, and have no doubt for us, the readers, that the crowds are celebrating the fact that a new king is in town. A new king is in town. However, what they're about to find out is that this king is different. This king is different <clears throat> to what they expected. <clears throat> Excuse me. See, where kings would usually, I said before, arrive valiantly, powerfully on a war horse in triumph. Jesus arrived on a colt. And a colt is basically, <clears throat> excuse me, a kid's horse. A colt is basically a tiny baby horse. See, <clears throat> up until this point, just pause. <laughs> it's catching. I've obviously been kissing my wife. <clears throat> up until this point Jesus has shown his miraculous power by healing the sick casting out demons but now he's showing a different side he's showing his meekness by riding on a horse fit for a small child See, Jesus is king but he's not like any other king but there's also another reason that Jesus comes in on a colt, and it's, again, to fulfill another Old Testament prophecy. See, back in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus is fulfilling what is being proclaimed about him in the Old Testament. Jesus is a humble king. And, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but Jesus somehow, in his sovereignty, manages to combine the most seemingly contradictory things. Right? You see it all throughout the, the Bible. He's powerful, and yet he's humble. He's majestic, and yet he's meek. Revelation 5 also speaks of his, his lamb-like nature, his kind of innocence and sub submissive nature but also his lion-like nature. He's, he's a roaring lion. He's the lion of truth, but he's conquering and ruling. Submissive and yet conquering. 
these two seemingly contradictory things, but Jesus, in his sovereignty, is able to combine them. And even though uh, Jesus arrives humbly on a cult into Jerusalem, there is no doubt what he is declaring. There's no doubt he's declaring, I am the king you've been waiting for. I am the one who will bring salvation. See, the message of Mark is this. The king is here. The king is here. Surrender to the king. Repent. Repent. Turn away. Turn away from your old way of living. Turn away from thinking you're the king of your life. Turn to him. Turn to the king. Believe in him. Believe. Put your trust in him and follow him. Follow him on the purposes and plans that he has for your life. Steps of obedience, following him day by day by day. Repent, believe, follow. And 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. See, now is the time to surrender to the king. And there's a reason for this. The reason is this, that right now Jesus is on a cult. He comes on a cult but soon he's going to return on a white horse and the outcome is going to be very different. The outcome is going to be very different. See, we're encouraged by Mark, by this, this reminder that Jesus came on, to, on a cult, to look, but also to look forward to a day when he returns. And Revelation 19 speaks of this. And it's... It, it should cause us to wince slightly (laughs) revelation 19 verse 11 then i saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his throne, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus came on a colt, but one day he's going to return on a white horse. He's meek and majestic, humble and powerful. He's a king, but he's not like any other king. He's the king of kings. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And Mark Mark encourages us now is the time to surrender to the king, to live your life in allegiance to him. Because one day it will be too late. It really will. When Jesus returns on a white horse, it will be too late. Now is the day of salvation. Secondly, Jesus declares he is king by cleansing the temple. <clears throat> Back in Mark, 15, uh, Mark 11... Verse 15, 
uh, it says, and he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Uh, see, when I first read this, I was thinking, was, was Jesus having a bad day? Um, like, again, this is not quite the Jesus that we often think of. You know, we've even, I, I've had conversations with people, just, God's not really like that, is he? He's, he's loving, you know. Does he really deal with sin in that way? And kind of we have conversations like that. Jesus gets angry. And I did wonder whether it was because he was hangry. You know, he's hungry and angry. Like he's annoyed at this fig tree that didn't give him any breakfast. I did wonder that. But then you look and you look further and you see that actually Jesus looked around in the temple and he saw idols everywhere. He saw idols everywhere. He, he saw the Jewish leaders exploiting worshippers for their own gain. See, the, 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 the Jewish leaders were, were charging uh, ridiculous prices for animals to be sacrificed. They were also uh, earning a few extra pennies on the side by allowing some of the, the merchants to, to cross through the temple area to, to cross the city more easily. They were also uh, taking advantage of the Gentiles, taking advantage of the foreign visitors. See, that they wouldn't allow Roman coins and they wouldn't allow uh, uh, people to use their, their foreign coins to pay for the sacrifice animals, the Greek coins, the Roman coins. And so the temple courts, what if they thought, ah, oh, we can earn a bit here. Let's fill this temple court with money changers and that we can earn some money and profit for exchanging the foreigners' money. See, this, you could say, is, is bad, but we really need to understand why Jesus sees this as so bad. And we see this in verse 17. See, verse 17 says, and he's, again, it's Jesus looking back to Isaiah and looking back to Jeremiah, uh, quoting from them, them books. It says, it is, not, is it not written... My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. See, we need to know a bit about the temple to understand why Jesus is so annoyed. Something probably stronger could be used. See, the outer temple, the outer courts of the temple is known as the courts of the Gentiles. And it was intended this, this place for, for Jews to, to, to pray for the salvation of the nations. But it was also a place for Gentiles to come and be look into what God is doing. Look, actually try and discover God for themselves. And yet these Jewish leaders have turned this place, which was for the house of prayer for all nations, they've turned it into a place of trade and profit. They've turned it into a den of robbers. And it's the very place where the Gentiles are supposed to be able to come and worship God that they're actually being done over by the Jews in them, with their money. See, by quoting Jeremiah 7.11, which is, is part of this bigger warning in Jeremiah from God, known as the Great Temple Sermon. Uh, Jesus warning the, the Jewish people that putting their trust in the temple, putting their trust in their Jewishness will not save them. So we're going to look at a few verses from Jeremiah 7. 
See, Jeremiah 7 verse 4 says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Skip into verse 9. It says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? And I will cast you out, verse 15, out of my sight. See, the Jews had kind of got to this place of thinking that because of their history with the temple, because of their history with God, that they could just go on sinning. They could just go on turning away from God and dealing and using the temple with how they thought without any consequence, without God bringing a consequence for their actions. The reality is God will ultimately judge their actions by casting them out of his presence, as warned by Jeremiah, if, if they don't surrender to him as king, if they don't surrender to him as the king of their lives. Does that mean they're to be perfect? No. But it's a motive of the heart. See, their heart desire was to try and pretend that they were all good and looking good. But deep down, they were just doing it to try and impress and show off rather than to surrender to the king. And verse 18, back in Mark, uh, we see the reaction of the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, and we see the reaction of, uh, of other Jews as well. We see that they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. They were astonished, so much so that they they wanted to kill him. And this astonishment, this shocking news that they're hearing, is because they have a deep history of the temple. And their belief is that the Messiah, the promised deliverer, would come to cleanse the temple from all the nations, to clean it up, to make it holy, get rid of the nations. But Jesus declaring, he has come to cleanse the temple for the nations. For the nations. See, the temple was this place where God dwelled on earth, the most sacred place. And it was not a place, the Jews thought, not a place for the Gentiles, not a place for the nations. And at the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies. Some of us will know this. And in front of it was this thick veil, And behind that veil was what was described as the Shekinah glory, the the divine presence of God. You could not survive it if you went in there. The very presence of God would kill you. Uh, But there was an opportunity once a year. Once a year, the the, the high priest would go in, uh, sometimes with a rope tied around his leg, just in case he didn't come out. Pull him back out again. Come on. Such is the, the power of the presence of God. But you could only go in if first a blood sacrifice was made. You could only go in if there was first a blood sacrifice. See, the blood sacrifice made a way into the presence of God. And I hope you see this. This pointed to going forward from then another blood sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. See, Colossians tells us that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
The fullness of God pleased to dwell. In other words, Jesus becomes the temple. Jesus becomes the place, the presence of God on earth. And yet also Joel, if we look back again, Joel prophesied a day when all flesh, when the spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. And so what happened was when Jesus, the great high priest, became the ultimate blood sacrifice, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, when he breathed his last, see that veil that that held us, that protected us from the presence of God? It tells us in the, the Gospels that it was torn from top to bottom. In other words, God opened the door. He opened the way. He opened the access for all of us to enter the presence of God. The ultimate blood sacrifice from Jesus Christ opened the way for all to access the presence of God. The presence of God no longer confined to the temple, no longer confined to just a specific place, a specific building, but available to all who surrender to the king, to all who repent. Turn away from their own way of living. Turn away from trying to do it my way. I'm the king of my own life. And turn towards Jesus. Put their trust in him and follow him, obeying him day by day by day. See, this is what Mark is trying to encourage us. He's enticing us in. Come on, come and join the story. Come and join this story of God to be carriers of the presence of God into the earth. See, what I love about this is now anyone, all nations that Jesus spoke of, all nations who put their trust in him will be given the Holy Spirit. We are now called the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are now the the carriers of the presence of God on earth. And we get to look forward to a day. We look forward to a day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters enter the sea, as the waters cover the sea. The presence of God will be everywhere. Everywhere. This is good news. This is really good news. Especially when you look around today. Especially when you hear about another stabbing in London. It's like, what? God. London needs your presence. London needs your presence. When you look around and you see that just more, I don't even know how to talk about Brexit anymore, but more disunity, more disunity, more disunity among our political parties, more disunity among the nations of the world, the leaders of the free world. It's like, what is going on? You know what it is? It's desperate, but one day, one day, the presence of God will be everywhere. That will be a good day. A day that we should long for more and more and more. And yet right now, those of us, this is amazing, those of us who surrender to the king here, right now, on this earth, who receive the Holy Spirit, get to take the presence of God wherever we go. Wherever we go. Not just here on a Sunday. We need to get this. We need to live with it. We need to understand it. We need to know it, that God is with us wherever we go. Everyone, everywhere, every day, everyone who surrenders to the king, not just the Jews, but all nations, including us here. 
everywhere, not just the temple, not just here on a Sunday as we gather as a church, but everywhere, at work, into the supermarkets during the week. Even in our own homes, our streets, at the school gate, presence of God's with us. Wow, if you think the presence of God is with you when you're going to drop your kids off at school, what can happen? Wow, who knows? Who knows what God has? But things can happen because God is with us. Every day, not just here on a Sunday, but every day. I believe for us in Welling, it's time to raise our expectation. Time to raise our expectation of what God can do in us. We need to be transformed, right? We need to be changed from one degree of glory to another. God needs to change us. But if you're not desiring it, it's probably not going to happen. Raise your expectation. We need to raise our expectation of what God can do through us. (laughs) What God can do through us, wherever you are. Every day, every one of us. I love it when on the WhatsApp, Welling WhatsApp, that sometimes can be annoying, but <laughs> it's great when you're hearing stories of, of encouraging things of God at work. And you hear, oh, I stepped out and prayed for someone at work today. Wow, what could God do in that moment? What could God do as we together start praying into these things? Hey, one of his stories of, of James <laughs> going to a cafe and speaking to the person and then later on going back a couple of weeks later, timidly asking, hey, how's your back? <laughs> In front of his mates at work, it's like, actually, it's better. Wow. We should probably expect it, right? Because it's God. Because God goes with us. Yet we're still amazed. One day, one day, I believe, these moments... These moments, moments, moments will turn into movements. It'll be like a movement of God's healing, a movement. It's not just one thing after the other every so often, but it's, this is happening day after day after day after day. God moving in us and through us, everyone, everywhere, every day. Let's expect gospel transformation. But getting back to Mark 11, we finish with this this strange event of the fig tree. But it's a warning. It's a warning because even this Jewish, Jewish crowd, just going back to when Jesus entered Jerusalem, even this Jewish crowd who were once crying out, save us, save us, we'll see a few days later a shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It's, it's crazy if you think about it because they recognized him as king. They recognized him, but they weren't willing to surrender to him as king. They recognized him as king, but they weren't willing to surrender their lives to him as king. Mark is inviting us not to make the same mistake. See, you could have heard about Jesus time after time after time. You could have grown up with Christian parents. You could have, you know, sat under teaching week after week, but unless you're willing to surrender to him as king, to submit to him,
he's warning us that we can be those a bit like that, that, that make the right noises at the right time, that, that sing at the right moments, sing passionately on a Sunday. And I know this. I know that there's a danger in me to be like this. That's why I, I kind of can say this. It's like I could be shouting and declaring, yes, God, on a Sunday, and then not really want anything to do with God throughout the week. It's a warning. It's a warning to us. And this warning illustrated in this victory moment. Let's just read it. Verse 13. It says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. It's reasonable enough. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. See, to understand this event, again, we need to look back. We need to look back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, uh, Israel is often referred to as a fig tree. It's this imagery of a fig tree referred to Israel. And so Jesus, in this passage, is saying, it's kind of this moment of, of cursing the fig tree, saying, no fruit will come from you. It's Jesus actually signifying the judgment of God on the fruitless. He's saying, there's no fruit? Well, so be it. So be it. It's basically, Jesus is just saying, this, this is the situation. Don't pretend it's something else. So be it. And so those who have, these, some of these Jews who have they've turned away from God, they've, they might look like they're still with God because they're in the temple, but in fact their hearts are away from God. Their hearts are away from God. Isaiah 29.13 puts it like this, Therefore the Lord said, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is but rules taught by men. See, Jesus, through cursing this fig tree, is saying true worshippers are not those who put their trust in the temple. They're not those who follow rules. They're not those who just try to look good. They're, they're not those who do the right thing at the right time. True worshippers are those imperfect people that are willing to surrender their lives to the king. And this fig tree moment is, is, an, example, is a, an illustration, a parable, if you like, for the ch- uh, Israel, but also for the church, for us. See, there's a... There's a warning not to be those that, that can look good. We go to church, we give, blah, 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 blah. But not surrendering our lives throughout the week. Or even as a church, to be those that put effort in on a, to gathering on a Sunday, but, but there's little impact into the community around us. There's a danger, I think, that God said, where's the fruit? Let's, let's seek God. Seek God for him. Have you surrendered to Jesus as your king? Are you wanting to be the king of your own life? Are you willing to surrender to him? Is there a specific area of your life you haven't yet surrendered to the king? I'm going to come and respond in a moment. Can the band come back up, please? I just want us to get this. Does this mean we're a perfect people? No. No. We're people that have got it all together. No. 
This is about, I believe, a heart posture of surrender. It's a heart posture of surrendering to God, saying, God, I do not have it all together. I do not have it all together. I'm not the king of my own life. Jesus, will you be the king of my life? The king has come. The king is coming. He came on a colt, and one day he will return on a white horse. He came and cleansed the temple for the nations. One day he's going to gather the nations to himself, where one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.